Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Karen, I'm really excited that you're back with us today. We always learn so much from you and it's so fun to pick your brain and hear all the things that you've learned and that you're willing to share with us. I'm really grateful for that. So today we're going to talk about neuroscience and all the things about it. So will you quick recap of who you are, just in case they haven't heard you before? Yeah. So hello, everyone. My name is Jared Brown. I live in Minnesota and most of my work is from the angle of a professor. I do a lot of trainings for different groups, quite a bit of consultation on a variety of topics, do a lot of publishing and research. And my main areas of focus are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, autism, most things related to like trauma, attachment. I do quite a bit of work in the area of youth fire setting and forensics and a number of other topics. And I'm doing more and more work in the area of neuroscience. I have a, a couple graduate certificates in neuroscience and doing more podcasts on the topic and trainings and really trying to weave in just neuroscience research into everything I do. On top of that, I am working on another master's degree right now in nutrition. So hopefully the plan, if everything goes as planned, I will be a nutritionist at some point, maybe in the next year and a half. And right now I, I want to incorporate the forensic, the behavioral health and neuroscience with nutrition, the gut, sleep, inflammation. And we'll, we'll talk about all those things and why it's so important to have such a holistic approach. When working with individuals with complex behavioral needs, if you're a parent, adoptive parent in foster care arena, we, we know, unfortunately, a higher percentage of kids who enter that arena do come from really complex backgrounds of trauma and attachment and brain-based impairments are very, very common, unfortunately. And that is one reason why it's so important to have that holistic approach. And part of that holistic approach is what we're talking about today, neuroscience, really understanding the brain, the nervous system, and, and everything that falls under that umbrella. I, I know this sounds silly, but I'm excited to learn this because even you just saying the nervous system, I'm like, oh, I guess that does fall under that. But I never would have thought of that. I just think neurology, I think the brain and that's it. Yeah, but the nervous system is the brain, spinal cord, neurons, neurotransmitters, neurohormones. It, it it's pretty calm. The brain is obviously very complex and by no means am I going to present myself as a, a neuroscience expert. I'm a person that is learning more about neuroscience all the time. There's literally tens of thousands of articles published on related neuroscience topics, countless books. So there's so many angles to take, but if you want to study neuroscience, what would that look like? You probably want to start understanding the different functions and the different regions and structures of the brain and what they do, the nervous system, 
even understanding the gut, the gut brain health access. Well, I think we did a, an episode on that, didn't we? In the past, the gut brain health access. If we didn't, we definitely need to do one at some point. We did because I learned all about that system and how it communicates with our brain. How amazing that is. Yeah. So the gut brain health access, you got to understand the gut and the brain. So anytime you're studying the brain, I hate to say it, it's probably equally important to understand the gut because the gut has its own nervous system. The brain has its nervous system. They talk to each other. If one or both are off, that throws our whole body out of balance. It can impact our mood and our behavior and our energy levels and the types of food we crave. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. So if you are a parent listening to this and you were starting to infuse neuroscience principles and practices into your parenting approaches, you're probably going to be in a better position to understand why your child has behavioral reactions, why they do the things they do. If you're a therapist listening to this, you might do well if you want to start infusing neuroscience into your therapy or counseling or practice. Looking at some of the research on neurocounseling or neuropsychotherapy, it's basically taking the principles of neuroscience and bringing them together and fusing it with therapy and counseling. I, I give talks on that frequently. Neuroscience can help guide and inform the development of a, a goal plan and intervention plan that's going to be way more effective. A case management plan is probably going to be way more effective if we understand what's going on in the brain and how that impacts behavior. The child goes to school. Teachers should absolutely learn about this because it will enhance their curriculum, brain-based teaching. It can help you better understand learning approaches that might be more conducive to that child's brain. Because what happens if one child has working memory deficits or processing speed or auditory processing issues, and you got another child in the classroom that doesn't have any of those things, but the teacher is not tailoring their curriculum for the brain that may have some of those impairments, that child's probably going to fall through the cracks they might become more irritable in the classroom. They may present as having ADHD. The teachers may look at that child as that child is just not paying attention and doesn't care. Maybe the child's referred to special education. They get labeled with a disorder they may or may not have. Over time, maybe they're medicated for something they may or may not need. But if we look at it from a brain-based perspective, we can tweak things. We can make approaches, strategies, interventions, goal plans more effective if it's tailored to that individual's strengths, needs, and limitations. Laura, I'll stop there. Thoughts on any of that? There's so many. I'm going to write those three things down really quick. Okay. So I hear what you're saying. And I'm like, this sounds really smart. And I want to parent this way. And I want all the people around my kids to be informed. And yet at the same time, I have no idea. Like, what does that look like? What, what would it look like to maybe start being a neuroscience informed parent? Yeah. How do you even like, not even like big picture neuroscience, yeah. but even more specifically my child, how do I understand the neuroscience of my specific child 
to then be able to parent around that and parent to their strengths and limitations. First and foremost, you need to understand the terms, the key concepts. So listening to things like this, going to trainings, reading articles, listening to scholarly videos online, buying books. You got to saturate yourself in the terms and the concepts first because you'd be flying in the dark if you didn't understand the very basics of neurotransmitters or neurohormones. Why is that important? Well, that's something we can talk about at another time. But if you don't understand the basics of those, you're going to be missing the mark. What about mirror neurons? That's a whole nother can of worms. Another term you want to be aware of. Memory would be a component of this. Does your child have memory problems? If so, what type? So if you're a parent and your child has a lot of complex needs, has that child ever been properly evaluated maybe by a neurologist or a neuropsychologist, cognitive testing? So getting testing to find out what parts of the brain might be working, what parts might have some limitations. Neuroplasticity, another big, big topic that's talked about in this research. And what about neurophysiology? That's a whole nother can of worms. And that has a lot to do with like heart rate variability, skin conductive testing. So I'm throwing a lot of things at you guys that maybe you've never heard of. But first and foremost, and it sounds like Laura, correct me if I'm wrong, we might be doing a series on neuroscience or something on that lines where we're going to build on all these concepts if we go deeper in the weeds. How your child learns and reads and calculates math problems, those are all related to neuroscience. Attention capabilities. Is your child struggling with staying focused in the classroom? That's neuroscience related. Is it true ADHD? Could it be an ear infection that's untreated? Could it be a food allergy that's untreated? There are a multitude of factors that can cause attention issues besides just having straight ADHD. Language development, language processing, how your child makes sense of language, how they communicate with other people, neuroscience, absolutely. Emotions, how does your child make sense of emotions? labeling them, processing them. How does your child function in a social environment? Social decision-making, social neuroscience is a whole nother avenue you'd want to be aware of. There's a multitude of factors to take into account. Laura, I'll stop there before I talk just briefly about like social neuroscience and why you might want to consider that topic as well. Well, I want to hear about that because I've never heard of that before. And a lot of, so many of these things, I'm like, I've never heard of these things. Yeah. And I'm sure they have a very easy definition and I'm sure we'll yeah. all say, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. But at the moment I feel very lost and feel like I need to go back to school and yeah. then go do a million more tests for my children to figure out what's going on with them. Well, so you tell like me social, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not alone. These are things a lot of times might not be taught in traditional parenting classes or Maybe you're, you're a family working with a foster care agency or child welfare, something like that. Every one of those agencies would probably do well becoming neuroscience informed because really behavior, I mean, how can it not be linked back to the brain? 
and the gut on some level. So we got to be aware of both. So when we talk about like social neuroscience, be aware of social cognition. That's the umbrella term for how human beings really function in the social arena, make sense of the social environment, how we make friends. Empathy has a lot to do with it. The topic of mentalization, theory of mind, just to name a few of the topics. If any of you are in the educational arena, be aware that there's a whole line of research literature on educational neuroscience. I think don't I think I I did a training. If you go to YouTube and type in my name and type in trauma informed education and neuroscience, the video should come up. I did a, a training with one of my colleagues for a, a group, I think last year. But if you're in the educational arena, or if your child obviously is going to school in some capacity and your child is struggling in the school environment, getting homework done on time, making sense of what's being taught, educational neuroscience can make a huge difference. So if that school is using educational neuroscience approaches, that can help improve classroom outcomes. Instructional strategies can be tailored. I gave the practical example, what happens if one child in that classroom has working memory deficits or information processing. Educational neuroscience takes into account brain-based learning, learning disabilities, learning styles, all of these things. So very, very important. Give you a couple terms, Laura, and your audience to be aware of if you want to take your knowledge to the deeper level for educational neuroscience. Just Google brain-based learning. You'll find all kinds of things to read about. Or neuroeducation. These are just different things that are found in that literature. When you talk about neuroeducation, again, brain-based approaches to help people learn more effectively. I The more and more I learn about this, it's helping me tailor the way I deliver trainings because I have a tendency to talk way too fast, and I know I am now, but I'm trying to slow it down. And I like doing podcasts. The reason, Laura, I like that is because they're recorded, and then people can go back and listen to it over and over again. For me, being in school, I'm a student right now, too. I love things that are recorded because listening to it one time, it doesn't stick for me. I got to go back and listen to it over and over and over. That's just my brain. For neuroeducation, knowing your brain, knowing your learning style, that's half the battle. If you know that you're an auditory learner, fantastic. If you're a visual learner, you need repetition. Kids with special needs typically need lots of repetition. Scaffolding interventions might be something to consider, making things visual, concrete, coaching, teaching, modeling, role-playing, and not just teaching it in one setting. So the child learns it in the classroom. Can they take what they learned, get on the school bus, use it on the school bus, use it on the playground, use it at home? A lot of times, no. So you have to practice the skill in multiple settings. Would you say that like, Brain-based learning would be like, if, if you were an educator listening to this, would that be a lot of like just multi-sensory approaches? Do those kind of go hand in hand or is it more like, than that? 
Well, that's that's definitely a, a piece of the puzzle. So taking into account, so you're talking like sensory processing and like sensory overload, things like that. Well, a little bit, but I like when I'm teaching. So I homeschooled for a long time. So when I was teaching reading, we were working on sounds. We'd have letters that they like spell out the word and then we'd like draw it in the sand. And then we would do videos on the letter A, you know, all those different things that are just kind of getting in their brain a hundred different ways. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Well, that's a piece of, definitely a piece of it. So how does the child make sense of complex topics? How long does their brain take to take in information from you? it goes into their brain, how long does it take for them to kind of make sense of it and then communicate it out? Those are all parts of it, abstract reasoning, executive function, metacognition. There's lots of layers to this, but what you said is definitely one piece of it. I'm curious, like as parents, are there things that, like if our kiddo is struggling and we're like, there's something more going on here, and we haven't done all the neuropsych testing. We haven't done all, all of the lovely things that you have suggested. Just like starting out, is there something that we can do? Like little tips and tricks? Because I'm thinking like, okay, speaking slower. Okay, waiting before I expect a response. Giving him a minute to process and building that time in before I say something else or before I remind him again or getting him to repeat it back to me. Um, are there things like that that you would suggest for parents? Yeah, some things just practically speaking, and again, I'm not giving any medical advice here, but are there any sleep issues? Ruling out sleep problems, work with a doctor, because so many kids with different kinds of diagnoses don't sleep that well. Sleep is a huge neuroscience topic. So if the child's not sleeping, the next day they get up and maybe have to go to class, their brain's already tired and slow. So rule out sleep. What are they eating? It has a lot to do with our brain. What food we put in our body is the fuel for our brain. So someone is always eating unhealthy foods, lots of sugar, lots of processed foods, meal skipping, that makes our brain not work properly. Does your child complain of digestive health issues, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, things like that? Target the gut, makes the brain better. Are their blood sugar levels off? If children's blood sugar levels dip too low because maybe they skip meals in the morning or they just drink a lot of pop, that makes their brain not work as properly. So ruling out the basics, is your child on the screen late into the evening and they're on their gadgets addicted to video games? That all has an impact on the brain. So those are a few things to start considering ruling out with healthcare providers. And if they have any issues in any of those areas, target that because that'll optimize the brain. And then hopefully they'll be in a better position to sit in that classroom or wherever they're at the next morning and their brains are working more effectively to take in that information. Do you say sleep, gut, and screens? Would you say that's a good place to start? Nutrition, top sleep, the gut, nutrition, but again, working with the nutritionist, because again, nutrition is the fuel and how many people truly eat healthy. There was a statistic I came across, I use in some of my studies and I don't know how accurate it is, but the statistic said that 99% of children in the United States don't 
fall under the umbrella of getting like the most adequate nutrition, the most adequate exercise, and they probably are on the screen way more than recommendations. And exercise is a whole nother thing to consider because if that child is dealing with some of these things we're talking about and they live a very sedentary lifestyle and they're never moving, exercise is medicine. There's no doubt about that from the research. It's very effective and it's very, very good for our brains. But again, talk to your doctor, your qualified healthcare professional before implementing these kind of strategies because some kids may have some medical comorbidities. Maybe there's some mobility issues that if they were to exercise, it could contribute to increase in injury risk as well. And for food, maybe there's a food allergy, a food sensitivity, even to something healthy. There, there are plenty of people that have food allergies to healthy foods. So ruling out food allergies, because if someone has an undiagnosed food allergy, that just throws off the gut as well. And again, if the gut's off, it throws off the brain. I can go deeper if you'd like. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Can we circle back to just some of those terms that you stated in the beginning, since we're kind of viewing this as a neuroscience 101, can we go back and kind of define some of those terms and what they, what they are and what they look like? Yeah. I, I mentioned social cognition. That'd be a term just, that's the umbrella term for how humans function in the social environment, friendship, making empathy, group behaviors, we talked a little bit about neurohormones, neurotransmitters. So you'd want to be aware of why those are important. And they're kind of the chemical messengers in the body. There's a book that was written that talks about like neurotransmitters being the body's Wi-Fi. So getting neurohormones, neurotransmitters regulated, executive function, CEO of the brain, boss of the brain, relates to decision-making, problem-solving. I didn't bring up the amygdala yet. That'd be a huge term you'd want to be aware of is the amygdala. That's part of the limbic system. And that plays a huge role in our emotions, fear responses. That would be a topic we will definitely have to tackle if, if you want me back for future ones because amygdala dysfunction is very common in kids with lots of trauma in utero or early childhood. And that plays a critical role in how kids process emotions and regulate their emotions. The gut-brain health access, that's kind of the bi-directional biochemical signaling between the gut and the brain. And the gut is the hub of immunity. A high percentage of our serotonin and dopamine are produced in the gut. And if the gut is not working properly, so someone has a lot of gut health issues and it might just be digestive health complaints or it could be full-blown digestive health disorders, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, those kind of things, likely that has an impact on our mood. Neurocounseling, neurotherapy, that'd be something if someone's like a case manager, a social worker, psychologist, that's the infusion of neuroscience into counseling practice. Any other terms, Laura, do you want me to kind of go deeper into? I think you hit all the ones that you had said earlier. Yeah. Or neuroplasticity. I, I just briefly mentioned that. Have, have you heard of that term at all? You didn't say that. And I 
maybe foolishly think that most people know about that because that's one of the, yeah. you know, one of the key things that is going around right now. Yeah, I love neuroplasticity research. So again, depending on how much the brain was damaged, it, it's different for everyone. But the nice thing with neuroplasticity research is really our brain's ability to adapt and change and alter over time in a good way. So if we're exposed to lots of good stuff, we get good sleep, we manage our stress effectively, we eat healthy, we're, we're in a really loving, calm environment, we're around family and friends who care about us. That has profound impacts on brain health, exercise, helps with neuroplasticity. If you were one to live a sedentary lifestyle and eat a lot of fast food and you're glued to your screen watching movies all the time and you don't use your brain actively, that can have profound impacts on brain functioning. If you're someone that likes to read, learn new things and grow, maybe it's travel, maybe it's volunteering, you will find research on all these things we're talking about that can have a very positive impact on neuroplasticity. Playing chess, you'll find research on that. Listening to music, engaging in art-based in interventions, not isolating yourself from just being around other people and talking, meditation, expanding your vocabulary, all are talked about in the neuroplasticity research. So the more you can live a balanced, healthy life and just fill your brain and body with good, healthy stuff, neuroplasticity or helping your brain. What does that look like in regards to a child who has brain damage? Like specifically really depends. has in utero yeah. FASD. It could be more challenging depending on a, a variety of factors. And then after they were born, how much trauma did they have as well? But repetition over and over and over again. You're in a protective family. You're in a good school. You are regularly in contact with your healthcare provider. You're taking an active interest in your health of your children. Good for brain and body. Getting your kids to have a balance. So the kids, again, I consult on way too many cases, kids and adults with FASD, autism, ADHD, a lot of times might be on the screen for a long period of time. Excessive screen time exposure is a threat to their health. Jigsaw puzzles are good for neuroplasticity. You will actually find research literature in the neurocounseling literature that talks about the benefits of just doing jigsaw puzzles. So getting your kids to do these things, arts and crafts, getting around animals, most of it's common sense. Think of the things we did when, when we were we were kids. I mean, we were probably outside more playing, not sitting at the screen for five, six, seven hours a day. Disconnect from the screen, eat healthier, get better sleep. All these are good for any child, regardless if it was in utero exposure to trauma or if it was the most perfect pregnancy in the history of mankind. All these things are good for any anybody's brain. Love that. I really love the jigsaw part of this because I love the jigsaw puzzle. It's just very practical. It's wonderful. Yes. Um, okay. I feel like this has given us a flyover 
of neuroscience. And I'm really grateful for that. And we're going to come back and we're going to kind of dive into this a little bit more. If that's okay. 1% maybe I gave people on the field of neuroscience. It's, it's a good start. It's vast, but I would love to hear from your audience if they're like, if things they've heard that they really want me to tackle in future episodes, because we could go down rabbit holes. So executive functions, a great topic, self-regulation, theory of mind, alexithymia, language, sensory processing, auditory processing, abstract reasoning, sleep. I mean, all these are neuroscience-based topics and a million more. Getting your kids around animals, love animals, so excellent for the brain and the body and there's some research depending on what study you look at having a four-legged animal in your house might be good for immunity good i'm glad i have these dogs then yes. maybe we're helping them um okay karen i'm grateful you're welcome. we'll circle back thanks for having me back deeper. absolutely yeah honored to be here always and great work you're doing i love your podcast program so thank you Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.